0: Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or
1: policies of its funding. Now this is recording. RTI
2: International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science.
1: Welcome. This is John Morgan with the Just Science Podcast, a production of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and
2: RTI International. On today's show, we'll be talking to Katherine Gurgachek, an assistant professor in the biomedical forensic sciences program at Boston University's School of Medicine. One of the hot topics in forensic science these days is DNA mixture interpretation. Catherine is a great expert in DNA mixture interpretation, and she's got an awful lot of tools and resources available now openly to the forensic science community that are very, very useful in this area. So we're really looking forward to learning more about their unique biomedical forensic sciences program and its value to forensic practitioners. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thanks
0: for having me.
2: So
1: tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Biomedical forensics is something I have not heard uh, existing elsewhere. How did that come about?
0: Well, that actually happened before my time here. What happened was a colleague of mine, Dr. Tara Moore, and my chair, Dr. Mark Moss. They developed this program in consultation with our current assistant director, Amy Broder, and they kept developing this program under the auspices of the Boston University School of Medicine. So the reason why biomedical is in the name is because when they developed the program, They had a vision that they were going to incorporate a number of biomedical aspects. We wanted to utilize a lot of the current technology that is already present at the School of Medicine and incorporate
1: it into our own program. So uh, how did you come to be at BU? What were you doing before Austin?
0: It's funny because I always describe myself as having a little bit of a multiple personality when it came to (laughs) forensics and science in general. Because what happened was I started my undergrad degree in essentially chemistry. The degree is in physical sciences, but I was accepted into what was known as a concurrent science and education program in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. I was very interested in continuing my education. Went back to school, finished Ph.D. in chemistry. So I've been flipping back and forth between forensic sciences and chemistry for a number of decades now. But I really like working at BU because it allows me to sort of merge the two worlds. I was able to integrate my electrochemical training into some of the research projects that we conduct here.
1: (laughs) Well, that's funny because I actually like that background because it's much more varied than I expected. I have you in my pigeonholed mind as being just DNA statistics, but in fact, your background is much broader than that, it sounds like to me.
0: Yeah, it is broad. I'm trying to narrow the focus down a little bit because it, it does end up, I think, it is a little bit of a challenge to be an expert in all things. So I have recently narrowed my focus a little bit, and a lot of my time recently has been spent on learning more about STR or forensic DNA
2: Now, this past September, uh, September 2016, as when we're recording this particular podcast, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology released a report recommending actions to strengthen forensic science, the so-called PCAST report you may have heard of. If you haven't heard of it or you haven't reviewed it, we'll make sure that there's a link on the podcast page that you can follow to get that report and, and read it through. There were a number of um, recommendations uh, in the report. Uh, One of them is a need for clarity about the scientific standards for the validity and reliability of forensic methods. And the second, a need to evaluate specific forensic methods to determine whether they have been scientifically established to be valid and reliable. The study aimed to identify research needs to close these gaps, and it specifically looked at DNA mixture interpretation. It looked at the idea that... uh, simple mixtures uh, where you have only two contributors, we have a pretty good handle on. But when the uh, mixtures become more complex, the PCAST report is very critical of the uh, results that are currently obtained in crime laboratories. So I urge you, whether you're a DNA scientist or some other kind of forensic scientist, to review the PCAST report and what they have to say.
1: I do want to focus on that today because I think that's a very important issue. I assume you've read or familiar with the PCAST report that came out that was critical of DNA mixture interpretation as is currently practiced. Are you familiar with that?
0: I am familiar with it. I read the mixture interpretation part. I didn't think it was that critical, actually. I thought it was, dare I say, hopeful. I think it sort of presented the community with a number of questions. It was a pretty good representation of where we stood, at least from a research perspective. I don't think there's anything wrong with performing more tests, understanding your system in a complete and comprehensive way. And mixture interpretation is complex. It is extremely difficult to do. It's hard to know whether or not it's done well. There's not enough research, and definitely there are not enough publications that describe uh, large studies that evaluate this. But I think that's forthcoming. And I think if forensic sciences as a discipline continues to invite other disciplines, such as statistics, engineering, biotechnology, if they continue to do that, I can only see good things happening. Sure. I didn't read it as if it was a criticism. I, I sort of read it as a potential path forward.
1: Well, even with respect to interpretive criticism, I mean, it did first lay out the idea that it's fairly well established for simple mixtures, right? If you only have two donors that it said straight out, as I recall, that we pretty much have that down, and it's for complex mixtures that are the biggest difficulty.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the way I describe it, at least to myself, is one has to evaluate the type of tools that are available to them, and given those tools, you establish the type of samples that ought to be evaluated using those tools. If you don't have the tools, then you're not going to be able to evaluate those samples. So back in the day when we were using SEMs rather than TEMs, which is transmission electron mic- microscopes, so, you know, we were missing quite a lot of information because the resolution wasn't where we wanted it to be. But as the decades move on and the years move on and the technology grows and again we invite members of the broader scientific community to help us with these problems, I think it'll be a benefit to us to
1: do that. If we can, let's get down into some of the details of it because I am not a biochemist and I'm not a forensic scientist. I understand these things at a certain level, but educate me a little bit because I understand at least two major things that make DNA difficult to interpret. Because, of course, the layperson like me, we look at DNA and we say, well, it's either AGCT or it's not. So it has the advantage of being something that's easy to reduce to something that looks like that pattern. But, of course, before you get to that, you have two major areas of problem. One is where you have a problem that's instrumental in nature. You might have a stutter or just a low signal or whatever else it might be. And then, of course, you have the actual mixture problem, and I assume that there's several different aspects of how mixtures can be a difficulty. So in your experience in terms of the tools that are being used now, and you have the complexities of both of those hitting, are they strong tools with respect to doing even simple mixtures if you also have instrumental problems happening?
0: Let me start by taking this one slice at a time. So I'm going to assume that people understand that there is genetic diversity in the loci or the locations of the DNA that we're targeting. So what we do as analytical people is we're interested in taking the particle, the molecule, whatever you want to call it, the DNA template, the copy. To me, it's all the same thing. It's one big molecule that either is or is not in the PCR tube. And PCR is just a mechanism by which the signal is amplified. So we're not amplifying the signal directly by using PCR, but essentially that's why we do it because it's difficult for us as scientists to see a DNA molecule without it being amplified or copied. So that's where my interest is, it's in that area where those amplified products or amplicons are then manipulated or aliquoted, whatever term you want to use, in the post-PCR process and then injected into whatever machine. And it, maybe it's injected into the capillary electrophoresis machine, or similarly, maybe now people are doing some next-gen sequencing. But the main crux of this is the PCR component. I mean, if we didn't have PCR, none of this would be working very well. So the issue, though, with PCR is not that the amplification is not efficient. I just gave a webinar that suggested that actually it is very, very efficient these days. In fact, it's so efficient we are able to see signal from single copies of DNA, one molecule. That's extremely powerful and sensitive. And I think everybody sort of conceptually knew, oh, yeah, DNA testing is very, very sensitive. The issue is single cell or single copy signal is inherently very noisy. And it's inherently very noisy because there's a significant amount of allele dropout or non-detection of alleles or signal that you would have seen had you had enough cells present either in the tube or when you collect it. So what happens in mixtures, it's not just the instrument component that complicates things because now you have noise. but What happens in mixtures is you get this combo of essentially partial profiles coming together. It's very hard to know what the number is. So right now, a lot of the tools from what I know in terms of probabilistic genotyping do require the analyst to put in an assumption on the number of contributors, and I know that is a matter of contention and some discussion because, of course, we know by the time you get the signal to look at the signal and try to assess How many partial genomes are represented there, I think, is a difficult problem. And that's part of the research program here. So what we did is we developed a data set, and we've released that data set to the community. And part of that data set was mixtures of two through five contributors run using different laboratory conditions. Because I think it's important that the developers, whether it be genotyping software or interpretation software, or even just normal everyday researchers who are interested in signal interpretation, I think it's important for them to have access to that data. And as far as I know, it's been difficult for people to get access to large data sets
1: how did you collect that data? Where did that data come from? Because I have this picture in my mind, if you swapped my check card or my phone, you probably could pick up four or five people off of that anyway.
0: Right. No, the, the, the profiles we generated were from known contributors. Most of them are from uh, whole Blood. So we obtained an IRB protocol, so Institutional Review Board, Human Subjects Testing Review. We made sure that that was completed and then once that was completed, then we went ahead and obtained some whole bloods and sometimes saliva and other single source types of samples, but mainly whole blood. And then we just started mixing it. So we knew the contributors and we knew the known genotypes and that information is provided with the FSA and HID profiles, which are the extensions to the file names that come out of the genetic analyzers. So the idea was that we didn't collect any quote-unquote mock profiles because in this data set we wanted to make sure that at least the genotypes, we knew what the ground truth of the genotypes were for each contributor. And then that way people can test their hypotheses, their models, whatever they want to test, they can test using that data set. And that was the goal.
1: Now, did you mix at the single cellular level? I mean, are these low copy? These were not low copy
0: So, actually, there's two data sets. There's something called the RD12 data set, and then there's the RD14 data set. So RD stands for Research and Development. The 12 and the 14 just signify the years that we created the profile. So in the RD12 data set, we actually mixed DNA extracts. So we extracted whole bloods, and then we mixed the whole bloods after we quantified the single source samples. What we did for the RD14 sample set, which is much larger than the RD12 sample set, is we actually mixed the bloods at different dilutions. So we took whole blood, don't quote me on the numbers, but it's like a 1 to 999, a 1 to 99, and a 1 to 9 dilution. And we had a sense of the amount of DNA we would expect for a given volume fraction of whole blood for that dilution. We mix the whole bloods, whether it be diluted or not, and then we extract it because the idea was we wanted to mimic as closely as possible the process that, you know, human identification laboratories would apply.
1: So and those data sets are available from a Boston University website or how are they available? Yes, the raw profiles
0: So the FSA and HID profiles, they are available at the website. The initial data set, which was 2,500 samples strong, but it turned out that although it sounds like a lot of profiles, it's actually not representative of a lot of mixtures. So in the last two to three years, because we had the very great fortune of acquiring some grant funding, we were able to generate an additional 25,000 profile. And when I say we, I mean Lauren Alphonse and Amanda Garrett, but in any case, we generated the 25,000 profiles and those are also now available. So we have a total of about 27 to 28K profiles, and I
1: think almost 30% of those are mixtures. Now, you've also been developing some mixture interpretation tools that are very highly regarded, especially if you get into complex mixtures. Perhaps you could address those resources, or maybe what the philosophy is behind them, you know, how you develop the tools first, and then let's talk about the tools themselves.
0: I'm going to give credit where credit is due here. And the main team that developed those tools include Uh, Dr. Desmond Lunn and his group, Harish Swaminathan, Slim Karkar, and Jim Kelly. So Desmond's group did develop two tools that we have placed online. There's a link to a software page. What's available online are prototypes of a software that is written in Java that provides the probability distribution on the number of contributors to a sample. So what that means is from a user's perspective, that means if I run a sample and I analyze it with any one of the common analysis softwares like GeneMarker or Cyrus or GeneMapper and I export that data. I can then import what I exported from GeneMapper or whatever into Knockit and Knockit will tell me the likely number of contributors. So that's the idea. We actually tested the software here at BU. So what we found was Knockit works relatively well when there is enough signal from every contributor. So Lauren, a former BMFS student who now works with me thankfully, she completed a project where she looked at the ability to infer the number of contributors using a variety of methods and she compared that against the template mass of the minor contributor across different complexities of sample. When I say complexities, I mean the true number of contributors varied between two and five. And it turned out that all of the methods start breaking down if you have less than about seven cells worth of DNA. That is if you start exhibiting, if the trace starts exhibiting significant levels of dropout, which sort of makes sense. one would say was expected, but now we know what that threshold is, and it turned out to be around,
1: for us, it's
0: around seven or eight cells worth of DNA, something like that.
1: I appreciate what you were saying earlier, that PCR is an amazing tool, and it has improved, and you can amplify off of one cell, but that doesn't mean you can productively (laughs) and reproducibly for forensic purposes use PCR in that way. And and so I, I think that being able to come back and say, yeah, if you've got something that you think is a mixture and you don't think you're starting with enough material that's at least seven or eight cells worth of material, then I don't care what tool you're using. Even the most sophisticated tools, which are the ones that you're looking at, aren't going to be able to give you as reliable an answer as it should be at high confidence, right? So I think what you just said is, is really an important result that uh, the field should pay attention to just by itself.
0: Yeah, but just to be clear, I mean, we are specifically talking about the ability to determine accurately the number of contributors at that level, right? Not the ability to produce, you know, quote unquote match statistics. And again, there's debate. and. I don't think I'll be able to answer this question well because, again, there's debate within the community, and rightfully so, of whether or not that number of contributors can effectively be determined and whether or not that assumption matters downstream when you're actually typing in that number into your interpretation software. So, For example, I I have direct experience with the second software that Dr. Lund's group built for us, which we call it CEES. And, you know, it produces a likelihood ratio, you know, quote-unquote match statistic for a DNA comparisons. And that prototype only allows the user to input a number of contributors up to three. That software doesn't even allow you to put four, five, or six. So again, I think more research would be required in order to know exactly where that limit is, and that's why we produced the proved-it data set. Because if someone can prove, or show or demonstrate that it is possible, then that's great, and there's nothing wrong with publishing that data, and that's exactly why we put that data set out there.
1: You refer to the tools as prototypes. Are they casework ready at this point?
0: I mean, I don't think they're casework ready. The ones online right now are not casework ready. And the reason I say that is because though we tested it at BU, we didn't do formal software testing, which I think would be necessary before casework implementation. So that's why I would say they're not casework ready.
1: So are you planning to do that?
0: That is planned, yeah. In fact, the version of Knockit that's available online is being completely revamped. So again, uh, my colleague Desmond Lunn is working with his group, and he's developed an interface for a and we've changed some of the models, which I'm going to let him talk about that <laughs> in more detail if he has an opportunity to do that. But in any case, we've changed quite a bit from the prototype to what is the version 2. And that version 2 that we're developing right now is being formally tested. So we're using the same, or we're using the guidelines that are provided by the FAA and FDA, and we're recording, I should say, all of the tests in a systematic manner so that all of the software testing that we've done is
1: accessible. I assume NOCCAT is the more mature of the two tools, is that right?
0: It is in the sense that we've done more tests on it. So Knock It and Seize It is all part of the same Java program. They're just different applications. So if I open up the file that's called whatever we want to name it, you know, Catherine <laughs> and I open it, what you see is the interface that has a knock it tab, seize it tab, and then a calibration tab. Because to parameterize the models we have to have calibration data or, you know, what forensics community calls validation data or data on which you can model. So there's three tabs. Each of the tab works independently, but we've put them into one system. So that's how it's going to look. So even though the prototypes are completely separate right now, eventually they'll be combined.
1: Research-wise in particular, are you continuing to do things like validating the Seize-It-Knock-It tools, or what other uh, interests are you pursuing these days?
0: Yeah, so we want to finish up with the Seize-It-Knock-It tools because we want to make sure they're working as expected. We don't want to put anything online that at least has not worked in our hands well. And the other thing is I'm trying to wrap up basically the Proved-It initiative. I'm trying to get all my ducks in a row, and I'm doing that with a lot of help from a lot of people just making sure that the tools are available to the community, both as research tools and as validation tools, and so they can test their own protocols. Even if they decide, for example, not to implement whatever tool we created into casework, at least it provides them with a mechanism by which to compare maybe the tool they're thinking of implementing. Because I know scientific software can be very costly. So sometimes if you're not allowed to see even what the output even looks like, it's hard sometimes to fathom what that might look like. These sorts of prototypes I think are helpful in that way because then you get to start to evaluate whether or not this would be something that would be something you wanted to implement. So these softwares will be available. People could play with them. They could also be used by students in different research labs and people could utilize these softwares as a jumping off point because I can envision people in computer engineering, statistics, technology development, looking at these softwares and saying, hmm, we actually don't do that. We use, you know, maybe machine learning and not this type of process in order to evaluate our signal. I wonder if that would work and they could use those softwares and the data to compare different mechanisms. And again, in an effort to push this field forward. I'm a researcher at heart. I believe research needs to be broad, and it needs to invite all kinds of analyses. And that way then the labs right. will be able to pick what works for them. And I think that is the path forward.
2: As we've highlighted today, there's a huge potential for Catherine's software and data to help with procedural development and processing of cases in the crime laboratory. Hopefully, this podcast has inspired you to explore the possibilities with DNA interpretation and look at her work and hopefully benefit from it. I want to thank Catherine, not only for her work, but her participation with us today on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about her work, please visit the podcast webpage